Thank you for joining the Boys Under Pressure podcast. I am your host, Eric Rodriguez. Today, we have a very special episode. It's our last episode of season one, and our guest is Cosmo Owen. He's been a pioneer in the punk rock scene. Hello, and thank you for joining the Poise Under Pressure podcast. I'm your host, as always, Eric Rodriguez. Now, today is a very special episode because it is our last episode of the season. We opened up the first episode very strongly with a guest named Jeff Weeks, former NFL coach. And of course, I wanted to end out the show with a strong guest as well, who is Cosmo Ohms, which is a very, very successful man in my opinion. And we're going to hear from him today. Cosmo, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Likewise, my friend. Cosmo, would you mind giving the audience a quick uh, bio background on yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Cosmo Holmes. It's actually a stage name that I've been using for years. Uh, I've been in the entertainment business since uh, about 1960. 62 or 63 when I started playing guitar and it's one thing that's led to another you know it's like learning the craft uh really learning that uh it's something I loved uh when I was first uh trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and was uh getting towards the end of uh, high school and it was time to make decisions uh I knew that uh that I wanted to uh, follow in some of the things that I was working with. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a dentist, but that was not to be. And uh, I moved out to Hawaii to go to school and uh, take pre-medical and pre-dental classes. And out there, I really became uh, what I wanted to do and what uh, path I wanted to follow. Uh, I have been a musician since I'm a child. Uh, my father was a musician before me, and that's the path that I really love. I love playing music. I love making it. I love supporting it in all different fashions, uh, whether it's uh, doing a show live in whatever, uh, whatever uh, position I have on the crew uh, or uh, coming in there as a producer and putting all the elements together that make a show work. Right on, man. And, and I, I can relate to that a lot, Cosmo, because I'm the same way. I just kind of followed, you know, my passions and it took me in a whole bunch of different directions as well. So for anybody that's listening out there, you know, if it's on your heart, just follow it because you never know where it's going to lead you and you don't know, you know, what lies ahead of you in the future if you don't take that leap of faith. You know, it's it's so important really to, to follow uh, follow the path of heart because the path of heart that, that affects everything we do in our life. The heart is in the center of the body and kind of uh, it has to speak to every organ in the body uh, and try to get them, uh, you know, under, I don't want to say, uh, you know, at a usable, uh, a usable level that you can apply yourself with. That's right. I agree. So, Cosmo, my first question is, who is your hero and inspiration? Uh, I'm going to name three people that were very, that are very important to me and have been in my life. 
The first would be my my teacher and the school, uh, the person that started the school that I'm in. Uh, that would be George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, uh, who was the founder of the Gurdjieff uh, Institute uh, in the world. Uh, the second would be a fellow by the name of Brian Wilson, composer, uh, head of the Beach Boys uh, rock and roll band, uh, influenced my life in so many different ways. And the third would be the most amazing musician I've ever seen in my life, which is Jimi Hendrix and how, how he played and how he really followed the path of his heart. And it took him to heights that uh, very few have achieved. Yeah, those are very three monumental people there, right there. Next question would be, what inspired you to start your career? I know you talked briefly on some of it earlier in your bio, but to get a little bit more in depth for the audience there. Okay. Uh, I w- the heart of it is music. Uh, music, vibrations, energy, and frequency. I think those are all the same words that uh, a fellow by the name of Nikola Tesla came up mm-hmm. with, who was, uh, some people say, the brightest person that's been on the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's been, you know, as as a young man, I always uh, uh, I always thought that music played a big role in life. And I didn't really realize how big a role it is. Uh, but I am realizing it in my later years that music is at the core of everything we do uh, in life. Uh couple of basic laws that are the fundamentals of how everything happens here are the law of three or three forces, a positive force, a negative force, and a recombining force. The octave. Music works through octaves, uh, which are, are uh, the integers between the notes and the sounds. And uh, in uh, Western music, we have uh, 12 tone music, which is uh, uh, seven whole notes and five half notes. And the scales came from, uh, from uh, two, two different sources, a five tone uh, scale, which is in Asian music and uh, Middle Eastern music, and the seven tone scale, which came up through the, uh, uh, through the Greeks and the English. And how, how the notes move, because we actually, every, the, the octaves are involved in everything that happens in life. Uh, and under integers, uh, you know, there, there's many different scales that are involved and uh, functions that are involved. But they all involve going through the octave and using the three forces, those create all the different forces, which would be the, either evolution or involution. Right on. There's a little uh, education for everybody out there that's listening right now. I love it. And speaking well, of the, force, yeah, you know, they're, they're, you know, it, these are things that I've learned in life mm-hmm. are really at the uh, at the crux and at the center of everything we do. Right on, man. Right on. And, and speaking of forces, I remember you uh, indulging a story with me about Ray Charles, who kind of had 
you know, that musical genius, even though, he, you know, everybody's aware that he's blind. But if you if you don't mind telling that story again, because I found it really intriguing about the whole uh, lighting system and he knew everything was off. Sure. Um, I've, I've had the great uh, honor to be able to work with Mr. Charles at uh, several times in my life uh, in different positions that I held. And I must admit, as a young man, uh, his music and all the different styles of music he played really influenced me. I mean, I think one of the first songs that I learned how to play was uh, What I Say. Anyway, uh, tunes kind of stuck with me as a young man and uh, uh, really influenced my learning how to play the guitar and, and wanting to, to discover and put myself on a path of discovery of what, make me, what makes music work. Well, I had a show with him I did at uh, uh, Brooklyn College in uh, New York City, and I was the lighting director for the show. And there was, uh, we were doing two shows. We were doing a, a matinee in the afternoon and then an evening show. Uh, during the first, uh, the first show, I played it really, really conservative and really I didn't make the, mo- the lights move a lot. Uh, just tried to keep the, the stage lit and uh, uh, accentuate what was going on in the music. And I took it really, really cool and really, uh, really slow. Uh, by the time the first show had ended, I felt a lot more comfortable of working with Mr. Charles. So in this, uh, once we got the show going, uh, I started to move the lights a little bit and uh, uh, change them slowly and uh, behind the music. And Ray stopped the show and said, why do you got to be messing with the lights and stuff? Uh, and here I'm thinking, you know, Ray Charles is blind. How is he aware of what I'm doing with the lights? And I found out uh, after the show that, uh, you know, uh, one, one sense not being there makes all the other senses much more acute and much more aware and evidently, uh, Mr. Charles would feel the heat of the instruments uh, and know that someone was, was affecting the lice. So it was a lesson for me, uh, and it was a lesson to follow the leader on stage. That's the person that's con- really controlling the show and that you have to make happy and please. And uh, like, like I said, I had to learn just to ease back on the controls, let him lead the show, and me follow. Yeah, I really enjoyed that story when he first told me, man. And it's just, it is really cool. Like you said, the fact that he didn't have his sight. So all the other senses, you know, just strengthened and heightened. So that was really cool. And speaking yeah, of. And, you know, I mean, such an amazing creator. Because, you know, back in those days, which was like uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Uh, you know, the, the technologies weren't involved, but people felt, you know, people have been doing lighting for, uh, for hundreds of years, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's a part of making the performance come alive. I agree. And speaking of performances and scenes, 
can you tell us a little bit about the punk scene and how that came about? Because I know that you were you were there at the beginning of it, Cosmo. Sure, it was uh, uh, it was a major time of change. Uh, at before that, uh, I had lived in Hawaii. Uh, I was going to school out there, and uh, we uh, I, we had a band that I was in called the Theater of Madness, and. Uh, after a while of playing there and we got to open for a lot of really of the big stars of that era, uh, because we had a, we had a manager that owned the radio station that did a lot of the uh, promotions there. So we got to uh, be part of, uh, you know, uh, bands like the, uh, opening up for Jefferson airplane, uh, for, uh, kiss, uh, for, uh, Steve Miller band, for uh, uh, Steppenwolf, uh, for a bunch of the uh, different performers there. And we got to see and be a part of those shows. And, you know, I used that time in as well as trying to, uh, to develop the band and start to grow a fan base of every time I worked with a band that was a lot bigger than us, we asked them lots of questions. And, you know, how how is it that you come about to do this? Why do you use uh, these songs? You know, uh, give us a little bit of history. And each one of the acts would give us little tips of what to do. Uh, we opened for the crazy world of Arthur Brown, who was uh, uh, really, really, it uh, was and still is an incredible performing artist and uh, ideologist, you know, and he uh, he's the one that did the song Fire, I Bring You Fire. Mm-hmm. On speaking with Arthur Brown, his show was very theatrical. And uh, he had some great players in his band. Uh, the drummer from Emerson, uh, uh, the keyboard, uh, not the keyboard player, from uh, uh, Atomic Rooster, I think the bass player. And he had these great players and we got a chance to, uh, to talk with them and to meet with them after the show. And as we were setting up the show, I'm watching, they're setting up all the, uh, 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 the headliners uh, uh, equipment along the stage. And I'm looking at this, this drum kit that was on it uh, that uh, uh, Carl Palmer had. And this thing was like half, you know, uh, half the space going back to the length of the stage, which was 40 feet. And I'm saying to myself, who is this guy that he's got all these great drums and this huge, you know, massive set to set up? And when I found out and heard him play, uh, it was like, wow, this is Carl Palmer. This is this is a serious drummer that's that's to be reckoned with. And uh, just, you know, a great Arthur Brown just chose great musicians and they accentuated what he did, which is a very theatrical show. Uh, And we were uh, the Theater of Madness was a theatrical band that was combining rock and roll music, uh, the music that was coming up in the 60s with uh, time changes and, you know, uh, all sorts of different ideas that were being presented. But we learned this, that this was uh, uh, part of our show happening. And to mm-hmm. see someone that had reached, you know, that had, you know, was opening, you know, was playing in front of 8,000 people, obviously he commandeered uh, 
everything he wanted. And by seeing that show, it just it was a real inspiration for us uh, to see someone that had taken it to the edge and how powerful it was. Uh, so uh, we learned quite a bit and realized that there are theatrical acts around. We were influenced like by, by acts like Alice Cooper, uh, the uh, Firesign Theater Company, uh, you know, acts that were already integrating theater into their shows, Pink mm-hmm. Floyd uh, with The Wall. And uh, that's the direction that we had chosen to go into uh, uh, when we got to New York. What we wanted to do is we wanted to be uh, one of the bright lights on Broadway, you know, and be able to take our show onto, uh, you know, onto a Broadway stage. Mm-hmm. And we, what we did is at a certain period, we were, uh, uh, it was suggested that we move to New York and get in the struggle of, uh, you know, coming up through the underground and being able to present our, our uh, show with, uh, you know, in full theatricality. So I'm assuming while you're coming up and, you know, trying to make the name for the band and whatnot, that there had to be some sort of adversity real and that's one thing that i always like to touch on this show so cosmo can you can you explain if there was ever one point in your life or the band you know for the band also where y'all face adversity or you face adversity and what you learned from it yeah well you know like to new york we sold just about everything we had except our equipment each one of us got to bring 10 albums and two suitcases, and that was okay. it. We had to uh, uh, condense it all, uh, get it to New York, and uh, start the uh, progress there. Well, you know, we, here we thought we're, you know, we've got backing now. We're going to be able to, you know, to do this on a much larger level. Uh, we got there. Most of our equipment <laughs> arrived broken, <laughs> so we had to uh, take the first six months and get the equipment repaired. And then uh, we were staying up in the Catskills. Uh, the people that helped us get over there uh, had arranged a, a, a house for us, kind of in a hippie commune, if you will. This is right, right around 1972. Okay. Uh, so we, we, started our, we started our journey, and uh, uh, we went at Madness till 1975. And we had uh, we had did off Broadway. Uh, we played in different clubs, and you know we uh, we had our own studio for a while, for almost eight months, and were able to do it. Well, as as life would have it, uh, you know these turns in the road are always uh, very interesting. But uh, right around the time, uh, nineteen seventy five. Uh, we were, you know, the theater of madness when it was in a club downtown playing, doing our theater show with uh, mixed with rock and roll. And a friend of mine who I had helped bail out of jail uh, in <laughs> Hawaii calls me up, a fellow by the name of uh, Rocky Teplitz. And Rocky calls me up. Hey, Kaz, how are you? I said, doing great. You know, he says, what are you and uh, uh, Cap and Dosa doing? Those were the nicknames of the of the other characters for Theater of Madness. I said, "Well, we're doing a we're doing a play here, a place called On the Rocks, uh, downtown, uh, uh, you know, in the in the Lower East Side area." 
come down and see us and, and see us. I'm sure uh, the guys would love to see you. He says, better than yet. He says, why don't you come uptown? He says, I've got a surprise to you. He said, you literally saved my life in Hawaii. He, he got thrown into jail for some reason in Hawaii. And he was a big guy, like 6'3", heavy set guy, big guy, you know, but not a tough guy, really. And he said, man, he says, he says, you literally saved my life. He says, because I was in the in the jail in Honolulu with all these different, you know, uh, different nationalities. And the fact that I was a white boy, you know, the, 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 the people didn't like that. I thought I was going to get killed. And when you bailed me out, you know, I thought it was all over for me. He says, I want to pay you back for that, for, for that, right? And he says, I'm with uh, ABC Paramount right now. This was 1975, right? And I go uptown and he gives me a boilerplate record contract for uh, ABC Paramount for the uh, Theater of Madness. And that was what we essentially went to do in New York is get a record contract and then try to do a play on Broadway. Well, I come back to our studio in Brooklyn and get together with the, the principals of Theater of Madness. And I said, guess what, guys? We've got a recording contract. All right. Well, this is the same time that our drummer had decided that it was time for him to lose, uh, leave the band. Uh, his mother and father had a uh, school, a uh, children's school in Holbrook, Massachusetts. And they were getting ready to retire and they decided to retire and that they were going to uh, give the, the school to their son, Ed. And at that point, when I brought it back, uh, he had come to the conclusion that he was leaving the act and uh, he was going to go up there and uh, try to work the school and maybe use his um, uh, key. Alrighty. Um, so like I said, um, I had come back there with a record contract and I thought everyone would be excited. And we found out the drummer was going to leave the act and that we would have no drummer and a third of the production company, if you will. Uh, so we, uh, myself and the uh, writer and creator, uh, Keith Drew is, uh, decided that, uh, you know, we, we had uh, took time for us to kind of absorb this. And uh, I spent about five months walking around depressed, you know, you know, not knowing what to do. And then I, I'm thinking to myself, geez, I came an awful long way to do this and to walk away like a dog with a tail between my legs. I couldn't do it. So, you know, I just I was going to stay there one way or another that there was so much going around in the, in the music industry that maybe there was something else we could do. Well, I spoke to Keith, who was my partner and uh, still is today. Uh, and I said, are you ready to call it a day? I said, I'm not ready to say, go back home and call it a day. I said, by the way, where's home? You know, I said, right now, home is New York City, Brooklyn. Uh, and we decided that we were going to create a new uh, entity out of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Phoenix, if you will, of the, uh, the, old, uh, the old company. And uh, Keith re-engineered the songs to become three-minute pop songs. Uh, music was changing, you know, uh, uh, 
new stuff was uh, getting ready to come on the radio. So we decided to do that and to format it like a rock and roll band that we wouldn't have all these uh, complicated sets and, you know, uh, structures to, to work with, but make it a pop band. So I ended up taking a gig at CBGB's as a short order cook. I uh, did that for about six months. Uh, I had a problem with the boss's wife, if you will. Not a good thing. And then I came okay. back. The next, okay. the, yeah, the next week, you know, he said, you know, go home, think about it a little bit. And, you know, I went back to my studio and I was like, you know, really, really downtrodden, if you will. But I decided, you know, I had, uh, since I had the stuff, the uh, some lights and stuff there for what the theater stuff we were doing, I decided, I said, hmm, I've got these lights. There are no lights in this, and then in CBGB's, just one overhead uh, uh, translucent light, uh, you know. Uh, and I said, you know, I went back there the next week and I said, Hilly, I've uh, figured out what to do for my penance. I said, you know, I made a mistake. I'm very sorry for that. Uh, I said, but at the same point, I said, you know, you need lights here. And he said, well, to hear the music. I said, no, they come to see a show. Mm -hmm. They come to see and hear the band. Otherwise, they could listen to a, on a tape. So I said, you need lights. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll bring you my lights in from my studio, and I'll, I'll do it for you for free for the first, uh, first week. If you like me, keep me on. If you don't, tell me to take a walk. And, you know, being a musician, I was able to listen to the other groups that were playing at that point and to make sense in my own head about how I could light them and enhance their performance. So uh, I came there with my lights and the first night I played there was like a magical night that the, the uh, a lot of different people from the scene were coming in and there was an open jam that went to eight in the morning and I lit oh. everything. Okay. And people liked what I did. And, you know, uh, Hilly said, you know, why don't you come in here and do lights for us? So I did that from 1976 to 1980. Uh, I was the lighting director at CBGB's. And as such, I got to work with all these great talents that were coming out from New York. And then as the different acts were coming over from Europe, especially England, um, I would like them. And Hilly was like the first one to bring the English acts over from uh, England and, and invite him to see. Okay. Uh, the, the, what would become the punk scene uh, was starting to open up and get named and tagged. Uh, I remember I had designed the CBGB t-shirt when I was at CBGB's. And I came in, I was, my day job, I was working at a uh, graphics house as a layout artist. And I brought the, the rough drawing in and uh, met with Hilly back there. And I said, I've got this, you know, the, the letters uh, and OMFUG, the home of, what's, what is CBGB's the home of? Hilly said to me, well, it's kind of... Uh, he says, the English, the English are calling it punk rock. He says, it's, uh, 
more like underground rock. He says, these kids come in here and they've got rips in their jeans and it's held together with gaffer tape and their guitar uh, cases are held. He says, you know, they're all poor. He says, but they've got great songs and great ideas. Uh, I, so he said, you know, make it uh, the home of underground rock. So I went back the next day to my day gig, uh, put the letters together, brought him back a copy of it. And it went to print. And that was the that was the story of the T-shirt. Anyway, uh, I had found out that, the you know, the music was changing and the English were calling it punk rock. Hilly was calling it underground rock. And it was alive and it was it was it was uh, uh, affecting and infecting everything in culture that was around at that time. Fashions, dance filmmaking, uh, storytelling, uh, you know, nothing on Broadway yet, but everything was coming alive with this punk scene. And I realized this was what, uh, what fate had dealt me, uh, that this was tremendous opening. And uh, like I said, I started uh, Anime's Records and I put out a record called Rockin' on the Bowery. And that was the beginning of that. And at that point, uh, there was a fellow by the name of Terry Ork. He was the first one to put out an independent record from the punk scene. And it was television's Little Johnny Jewel. Well, we became friends, you know, as friends with Hilly. And I became friends with Jim Harold from the Ratskeller in Boston. Well, uh, around 78, there was a big record convention that happened in... Uh, uh, in Manhattan, and I ended up uh, putting my uh, my record company and the three other companies in a little booth, and we were there with Capitol Records and Warner Brothers, uh, uh, MGM Records, all these different people that were the record industry, and they all came over to my booth and they're asking me, "What is this music and what is this all about?" And I said to them. Uh, quote unquote, this is the music that you hate, that your kids love, and that you're going to be tripping over each other's sho uh, shoelaces to sign in the next six months. <laughs> yeah, love it. Yeah, and let me let me move forward right now to what what we were doing together and the project that I'm uh, working on with the uh, is uh, I met Rainbow uh, Klein who is the writer of uh, the, uh, the Beach Boys book uh, called uh, uh, The Endless Summer. And uh, she was looking for people to help her with the production. And I, I read this book and I found out that it was about the Beach Boys. Now, I happen to love the Beach Boys and was, uh, uh, like I said in the beginning, this was one of the bands that... Uh, Brian Wilson that really influenced my life, uh, you know, my writing, my my production and everything. And, uh, you know, I saw this thing and I said, I wasn't really, really uh, busy at that time. And I said, I'm interested in this. Let's let let's talk about it. Well, Rainbow sent me her book this summer. I read it. I couldn't down and I was just completely blown away by her creativity uh, in which she styled the book. 
she took mm -hmm. several of the Beach Boys tunes and put them together sequentially in a story that became a uh, that became the theme. And she used the idea that the Beach Boys came up with three brothers, a cousin and a friend down the street and, uh, you know, put together this uh, uh, this act. And it was like I said, I grew up on the Beach Boys music and my first uh, act down here, a band called the Gents Five, would be called a Beach Boy tribute band now. But that's how I learned how to play music was by uh, reverse engineering uh, 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 some of the uh, surf, uh, surf uh, instrumentals like from the Ventures and uh, you know, uh, all the all the great surf bands. And that was the music that had taken over the industry at that point. And then, uh, like I said, I loved the Beach Boys and their harmonies. And I started that band on singing Beach Boy music and becoming a, uh, a tribute band, if you will. And uh, like I said, that lasted for me until the about uh, 66 when I decided to move out to Hawaii. I moved out there and that that created a whole nother that was the that was the path the career career path that i've followed up to this day so now i'm working with uh with rainbow uh to help her develop this uh property uh, uh i found out from uh, a friend of ours a, a mutual friend that was the german uh president of the beach boys fan club that they were uh uh, doing their legacy uh, uh, and their estate work with uh, uh, Irving Azoff, uh, who's a very, very powerful player in the music industry and someone that can, uh, that can take, uh, you know, an act like the Eagles, like Jimmy Buffett, uh, like uh, uh, John Bon Jovi, and manage their careers and make them very, very successful and take care of their uh, legacy interests. So we, we got introduced to him. Uh, I was able to, through a lot of, uh, just a lot of good old uh, shoulder grease and elbow grease, get uh, Rainbow's uh, uh, project into the office and under consideration. So that's where we sit right now. Uh, I, I think Rainbow is an incredible artist. Mm -hmm. uh, she's an incredible uh, perceptive person. Uh, and she wrote a great play, and I think it has every uh, uh, intention and every probability of becoming something big that could become a world a uh, worldwide phenomena. So I've been helping her for the last uh, five six years into developing this. And yes, I, I I'm with you, man. Rainbow, I had the pleasure of working with her as well recently during my my play. And tremendous acting ability, creativity is through the roof. Uh, I love everything about her. I'm pretty sure that it's going to be a huge success. Um, the Beach Boys play for sure, and she's she's going to be on the show hopefully next season because I want to give her um, an episode all for herself just to dive into everything that she's getting into and everything that she's worked on as well. So yeah, yeah. shout out to yeah. Rainbow Klein. We'll be talking to you soon. And Cosmo, as far as your story, your story is very inspirational, man, because I like the way that you you pivoted, you know, every time that something kind of hindered your, your path, 
you pivoted and took it to a new route. And then that's what took you down a new career path. It even led you into the, the birth of the punk rock scene, which is pretty legendary in my opinion. Well, you know, it was like I said, it was, uh, mm -hmm. I happened to be put in the middle of it. I don't think it, I don't believe in accidents in the world. I mm -hmm. believe in things that are maybe the, the understanding of the cause and effect. We just don't understand it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but as if you stay with things long enough, they, they reveal why and how and why you've been pushed in certain ways. You know, so it's like I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. And I, I was very lucky and uh, I stayed with some uh, uh, opportunities that came my way. And that's where I'm at now, trying to uh, trying to realize all this and to help other artists to grow that people that understand that you have to a you have to have something good and b you got to be willing to split blood and tears to make it happen right on man couldn't be more couldn't be more said truer than that you well know. cosmo we're uh, we're sadly we're reaching the end of our time but you know hearing your story it was truly inspiring to me and i'm sure to the listeners out there but before we get off is there anything that you want to leave with our audience right now? Yeah. You know, if, uh, if you have something you believe in, go at it with, go at it with your three brains engaged, your mind, your heart, and your, and your gut, because, uh, there, each one of those are actually, uh, part of our mind set up our, our, the way we're wired by, by nature. And they're all there for a reason. So what I would say is, you know, if you have a belief or something that you want to do, put your whole self to it. Put your whole being in it. Immerse yourself in it. Find out what it is. Feel it. Live it alive and believe it and make it happen. Beautiful. Very well said. Well, my friend, it's been an amazing time talking to you. We're actually, I'm probably going to have to bring you back for a part two, man, next season, because I know there's more stuff that we want to talk about. We just didn't have enough time today. So yep. I'm going to have to bring you back for sure. Um, well, so I can say it's great to meet you and, you know, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, trying to help uh, Rainbow with her part in the play that she produced. Uh, you know, I found out that you're, you're an incredible person and you have the desire and the wherewithal to make it happen and the gut to make it uh, make it real. It's a pleasure to meet you and to work with you, Eric. Likewise, Cosmo. And I appreciate that, man. I really do. Thank you. Yeah. I just want to wish everyone a wonderful, happy holiday season, whatever your, uh, your religion is, whatever your belief is, enjoy this time, make it good, make it good for yourself and for the people that you love and care about. Right on. And once again, thank you all for joining the Boys Under Pressure podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Rodriguez, and thank you all for joining the last episode of the season. And just like Cosmo said, everybody have a safe and wonderful holiday season. We'll see you all next year. Bye now. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Once again, thank you for joining the Boys Under Pressure podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rodriguez. That wraps it up for season one. But stay tuned for season two coming out in January. We have a full guest list that's going to blow your mind. 